What's up, you Goombas? It's your boy, fresh off a gold medal win at the UAE JJF tournament in Orlando. Finally over my flu, the disease that's been spreading all over the world and all over the country the past couple of months hit your boy as well. So finally feeling better, getting back into shape slowly. And I know it's been a while, I've been busy, but before I fill in all you people on what's been going on in my world, I want to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by Choke Aloha. Head over to ChokeAloha.com and use the promo code Jujitsu Radio and get 20% off. Now they boosted up another 10 just because of how much they love you guys and I can't thank them enough for the support, but you get 20% off your entire order at Chocaloha.com when you use the promo code Jujitsu Radio. They just released some new swag, um, some new rash guards, some uh, belt rank tees, and a pop socket for everyone that's keeping up with the latest trends in cell phone accessories. So check them out, Chocaloha.com, pick it up. Uh, it's, uh, this podcast is also sponsored by the Jiu-Jitsu Soap Company. Head over to jujitsusoapcode.com. Use the promo code JJRADIO and get 10% off your entire order. Get some soap. Probably wouldn't have gotten the sake if I would have gotten some new bars. I haven't had a chance to, uh, to order any new bars from them, but you can actually get a good deal right now. They have three bars for $10.99, I think it is. So go check them out. Thank you guys for all the support. Also, if you want to support the podcast, be sure to check out my online store at mycosmicjourney.com. It's my blog. There you can check out everything that I've been up to. You can see all my photos from the last few events that I've been at. And you can even pick up some of the shirts that I make. Um, All the links and everything are on there. If you want to support the podcast, I completely appreciate it. You don't have to buy it. I don't make any money off of this podcast. But that's also why I've been so busy because I've been busting my ass working. So if you want to support me and want to pick up some shirts or mugs or anything like that, go to mycosmicjourney.com and you can check out the blog and check out the store. Support the sponsors. Support me if you'd like. If not... Appreciate your love anyway. Now, let's get into the nitty-gritty of all the craziness that has been my life. First tournament in two years came out with a gold medal. A couple of my teammates uh, medaled as well, so congratulations to them. Uh, thank you to my coach. Uh, thank you to everyone at Excel Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, you know, it's nice to finally be in a, a part of a team where the... Uh, you know, where the instructor actually shows up and supports the team and actually coaches the, the team members. Um, that's been an issue with me before, one of the main reasons why I switched schools. So it's, it's really good to, uh, to see everyone actually be together and be a part of a team. Now, that's not the only thing I've been up to. I've been trying to train, but I've also been super busy. Uh, I flew up to New York to do a photo shoot with Tatami. I, I know I talked about it on the last podcast. Big thanks to... Um, JT Torres and Vitor Shaolin. You guys can go out, 
and uh, check out Tatami Fightwear's website. You'll see some of the photos and some of the stuff on social media. So been busy there. I also finally got to photograph the ADCC Florida Open, the USA Open. Uh, it was about two weeks ago. So if you go over to the Sonder Marketing Facebook page, which is my company, you guys can see all the photos. It was a crazy tournament. And if you guys didn't get a chance to listen to the podcast, I would definitely suggest you go back and check it out because Carlos and I talked about the craziness of what it was going to be like when people didn't know the rules. And sure enough, man, I was photographing one match on, I want to say it was Matt 1. And there was just a lull in the action, and I just decided to look towards the other mats to see what was going on. And sure enough, I saw one of the beginner uh, levels. One guy got caught in the triangle, managed to stand up and pick up the guy in the triangle and slam him. Mind you, he picked him up. The guy had to be like 5'8", 5'8" like six something like around that height but he picked him up so he picked this guy up at a good six feet six feet four inches up off the ground jumped up and then slammed him flat onto a zebra mat that's just on hard wood floor in a division where obviously that was not allowed so needless to say this guy got knocked out for a brief moment the guy that did the slam he went and took his back and it took it took the ref way too long to stop it. He let it keep going. He didn't just pick up the guy. So I, that's not his fault. It's just, you know, the competitors didn't know the rules. But, you know, big thanks to uh, Carlos and uh, ADCC USA for letting me come in and take photos. It was good, man. It was a really good turnout. The gym was packed. Anybody that's anybody in uh, in grappling in South Florida was there. All the guys from Fight Sports, the guys from... Uh, combat club and all these and american top team all these uh schools were out there competing uh got to see uh, my friend uh, professor marcelo cohen win um a couple of guys from combat club compete and win with gilbert as he's preparing for his fight which is actually this next coming weekend but uh it was cool it was a good tournament it's definitely worth checking out so if you guys saw me on flow grappling uh let me know I didn't get a chance to go back and watch all the other matches yet on Flow Grappling. Other than that, man, it's been uh, it's been a little bit crazy around here. I've been trying to get back into training and just working a lot. Obviously, got to pay the bills. Um, I'm no longer doing any work with Titan FC. Um, as you guys know, I'm always down to work with uh, all different companies and stuff like that. And obviously, I'm not going to get into the specifics. But I had to make the decision to leave them as a client and not work with them anymore for my own um, personal decision and obviously uh, other things that are more beneficial for me have come up. So, you know, I wish them all the best. Shorty just won his his title defense the other day. Um, He knocked out... uh, 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 Alberto, which he, he's actually a, a friend of mine. He trains over at Hard Knocks. It was a brutal knockout. So hopefully he uh, he feels uh, back to uh, back to par soon. And then also shout out to Erwin Rivera who fought. His fight did not go that long. Unfortunately, he suffered an injury um, very early on in the first round. Just one of those like freak accidents. 
I've seen this man take kicks and punches to no end. And uh, Edder Terry just kicked him at the right spot in his shin and broke his shin. Broke the tibia. Um, props to Irwin. He tried to fight through it and just the leg bent. If you watch the replay, you can see the bone pop out. Um, not out of the skin, but just pop out and stretch the skin. So that was kind of brutal to see a, a friend injured like that. So I wish Irwin a fast and uh, easy recovery. Oh, man, what else has been going on? Nothing, not that much, man. Just been keeping busy, and, you know, all the craziness that is my life and all the weirdness, the crazy neighbors, you name it. I've I've been having to deal with it, but... This podcast is not about any of that. This podcast actually is a lot of fun because I got to peer pressure a friend of mine to be on the podcast. She has nothing to do with jujitsu or combat sports whatsoever, but she is a good friend of mine. Uh, I've known her for a couple of years now. She is probably one of the nicest people you'll ever meet and is just a ray of sunshine no matter how <laughs> frustrated or annoyed at the world you may be, this girl will sit there and poke at you until you start laughing and smiling along with her. Um, she moved to California, lived down here in Florida, moved to California a uh, couple of months ago for work, came back just to uh, see her family and take a little bit of a vac- vacation, so it was nice to catch up with her. She is a three-time Olympian, Silver medalist, women's volleyball player, Heather Bowen. I want to start this podcast by saying there were some technical issues with the audio recording just because we were using Zencaster and I was trying really hard to have everything going, but there's not much I can do. You know, I didn't have my, my big equipment set up, but I feel like everything came out pretty well. Um, so if you guys just uh, deal with it. And just go on. I think you'll get a lot out of this podcast. I had a lot of blast doing it. And I actually learned a lot. Knowing Heather as much as I do. I actually learned a lot more about her and her experience in the Olympics. Especially since the Winter Olympics are going on now in South Korea. I think there's a lot of stuff that including my people like myself don't know. But the things that some of these players really have to go through. I know there's a lot in the in the news about, oh, it's a big old party and this and the other. But... These people have a lot of stress, and you know some people handle it better than others. Some athletes handle it better than others. So it was really cool to see from an athlete's point of view who's really actually performed and competed at the top, top level of her sport and get that perspective of the mentality and what goes on through your head. And I think it's one of those things that regardless if you're male or female, you can get a lot uh, out of this. She is a very inspirational person for me, and I think uh, for a lot of people as well. She does a lot of coaching um, with kids and uh, part of her own uh, brand and uh, and um, work is you know being a coach and being a mental coach for for a lot of athletes. So I feel it was really important to get her on the podcast and kind of. Let you guys um, hear it from a different world for a lot of you people that compete and want to hear stuff. And we had fun. Just kind of joked around and made fun of each other a little bit. But without further ado, here is three-time Olympic athlete, 
and Olympic silver medalist Heather Bowen. You can't Niba! <laughs> Deal. I'm the best there is, plain and simple. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I piss excellence, and nobody can hang with myself. Keep stealing, woo, wheeling, dealing, living the right, just flying, son of a gun, and I'm having a hard time holding these alligators down. Woo! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Jiu-Jitsu Radio. This is take two. We were having a little bit of some microphone problems and then the bathroom break involved. So hopefully this time it works. Today, I am joined by the embarrassed and beat red now, Heather Bowen, three-time Olympian in women's volleyball, silver medalist. Say hello. Hello, and I don't know that I'm beat red. Oh, definitely. I guess you're from <laughs> from here. Aww. All right, yeah. So now we got the microphone levels. Um, so real quick, I know we did it before. I kind of have to go through it again, real quick. You don't have to go in that detail, but kind of give everyone an idea of who you are, because obviously you don't do jujitsu, despite my attempts at trying to get you to to try. Once, once you tried. But <laughs> hey, I'm not going to force people. <laughs> But uh, kind of give everyone an idea of who you are and, and what you do. So my name's Heather Bowen, as Alexis has said. And I was a member of the U.S. national team from 1999 until 2012. Uh, competed in um, three Olympic Games. So Sydney, Australia, Athens, Greece, and Beijing, China. And then was an alternate for London. Um yeah, so that's pretty much where that's at. We got a silver medal in Beijing, and then uh, first one since the 84 Games in L.A., and then uh, I have had the privilege to participate in some professional leagues overseas for, gosh, about 14 years. So I spent about 10 years in Italy, uh, a year in Istanbul, Turkey, and then a year in uh, Azerbaijan, <laughs> And uh, a year in Russia, and then finished off my professional career with a, a year in uh, Shanghai, China. That was Azerbaijan. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually nice. Baku's actually really pretty. A um, lot of oil in that country, a lot of money for that. So they tried to make a push with some of their, their sporting leagues, uh, volleyball or women's volleyball specifically being one of them. Um, so there was quite a few players for a couple of years that, that had gone out there and tried to infuse the league with some top-level play. So now, like, the Olympics started, the Winter Olympics, even though volleyball isn't Winter Olympics, you're, like, knee-deep in all this stuff, huh? I am all about Team USA, and actually, they're trying to do snow volleyball. Snow, snow volleyball? Like, yeah, you're they, out they in the actually, snow playing? Yeah, so it's the supposedly, like, beach volleyball, but it's on the snow, and they did an exhibition match. They had some people from the FIVB um, athlete commission. They are actually in Pyeongchang and they did, I believe it was that the Austria house, they did a, um, like an exhibition match kind of just to show people what it would be in Europe. They have, they have a league for it already. These people um, do understand that they're like, you can have volleyball inside of a building, right? They don't just randomly yeah. forget in the winter time. No, but then it's like no fun because you have all the elements and it's, I think it's either two or three people. I think they did three um, from the pictures and stuff that I've seen. It was co-ed 
And I don't know if the Olympic sport would be co-ed or not, but they have, yeah, they're trying to add it to one of the sports for the winter games. I feel like that would be like <laughs> a little bit more dangerous than what it needs to be for volleyball. I think it depends on the conditions, like if it's icy or if it's like powder. But I oh, mean, there's got to be so many move? blasted knees. I mean, but like, how do you move? Like, I mean, when I was young, I would ski and I haven't done it since, you know, obviously playing volleyball because contracts and things prohibited it. But because just moving in the snow, I think beach volleyball is fun, but I don't do it seriously for like competition because I giggle. Don't you have to like you would have to wear like all kinds of like they were wearing it looked like they were wearing kind of like the ski like the alpine skiers how they have the thin like that's what it looked like in the pictures that I saw and then they had like jerseys on obviously just to show but what about their feet I think they wear tennis shoes or snowshoes I don't know but I I mean you couldn't have them super heavy because you wouldn't be able to move yeah but then you need something with grip. Yeah, but well, then you I think can't have, have a soggy like, shoe, like so it's got to be a rubber. No, but what I think it's like the soccer shoe where they have the small, or like a golf shoe where they have like the small. Um, yeah, but like on those shoes don't have to be waterproof. Like a soccer shoe can be waterproof, but like a cleat, but. I don't know. You still have like. I think maybe you should just look into this a little bit. <laughs> but I think I, I do believe because I saw one of the Serbian uh, guys that's out there, he was showing some of his equipment as he was packing back home before he went to Korea. And I believe his shoes had like little uh, spikes on, like, I mean, how you would have like the tread on the bottom of a soccer shoe. Right. I mean, I get that part. I would just see like the snow melting and just making your shoe all <laughs> soggy and all kinds of stuff. I mean, well, I don't know. Yeah. Like at least beach volleyball, you can do barefoot. Like, yeah. But there's some people that wear shoes, right? For beach volleyball. I feel like that's I don't that's think a, on the professional circuit. I don't think so. I've never seen. Uh, I've never seen anyone's sand shoes. You guys just hose people it sand socks. Okay, that's people wear sand socks, but they're yeah, they're just like little booties. Um, but there, there's no shoes. Yeah, we used to use those in Hawaii. So, like, have you been like watching the TV nonstop every day? <sighs> I have made my parents watch in the evenings. I don't watch it in the daytime because I'm busy doing other stuff. But in the evenings, I'll sit and I'll watch the the team you'd perform. figure like you'd almost be like burnt out like you'd be like yeah no whatever it's just cool like through different organizations that i've been able to work with i've met quite a few of the winter athletes which i don't think i would have had that opportunity had i just stayed with like summer sports and stuff um so it's always fun to see people that i've i've met over the years compete and so i i watch more for that than for anything else because even sports in general like I'm, and people give me grief all the time. Like, I'm not really a sports person per se. Like, I support people I know and on their journeys and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I don't... Just sit down and stare at ESPN all day. No, I can't. Like, there's... I, it's just... It's not interesting to me. Like, after living that life for so long and knowing what goes into it, yes, if I know the person, like, I'm right there with them to support them 100% and do everything I can. And if that's watching them on TV and just knowing what's going on with them and seeing how they're doing to be able to, you know, talk to them about something or just be give the congratulations, whatever it is they need. Yeah. Because it's always nice, like when you're on the road and we were on the road so much when I played, like to have a note from a friend or a message or something come through and be like, oh, you know, they're taking the time out of their day to support and watch. Yeah. Um, you know, a little bit goes a long way, especially when they're on the road for as many days as they are. So, so do you remember like that moment 
of when you went from obviously like playing college and stuff like that to when you first started like training with Olympic level volleyball players? Like, was there like a moment where you're like, oh shit, like, like stuff has definitely stepped up now? <laughs> yeah, I never was a player that thought I was at the level that I needed to be at. Um, I never felt comfortable as far as I was good enough. And so going from college, I was terrified when my college coach uh, had said, I'm doing, you know, you're going to the national team tryout. And I was like, "What? no, I'm not. And um, it, it's, I mean, even at that time, like in college, I started playing volleyball when I was a junior in high school. So I literally had been playing the sport for five years by the time I was an Olympian, which is crazy. Six years, maybe like it's crazy. Um, and so I just, I, you have to go into it with the mindset that you're going to have fun and you're going to learn and what comes comes. And I think that was the best thing I could have done for myself at that time. Um, cause I was still developing. I was such a sleeper player. And, and I think that's for any sport across the board. I don't think it's just volleyball specific. I think that as you're developing and if you're having fun and you're finding something in it that you truly enjoy, you're going to keep doing it. I mean, I'm sure it's the same with you and jujitsu. Like there's something about it on a fundamental level that you truly enjoy when you're on the mat rolling. And that's what keeps you going back because you have this thirst to learn and get better and develop. And you know you can if you surround yourself with the right people, even though it's scary sometimes and you know you're not doing it right or you're not to their level. But at that time, you have the people to look and emulate after and know, okay, I want to get there. That's what I have to do. And I think that was one of the biggest things for me on the national team was just being in the gym with these athletes. And, and it's people that were in college that when I was a freshman, you know, I'm seeing them win national championships and, and play at the highest level. And I'm just in awe of them. And then looking around and being like, holy crap, like they're to my left and right. And now they're trusting me to help them get better. Yeah. And so it's just, it's a really cool moment. And I don't think you ever stop trying to be the best you can be. So the hardest part is always getting in the door, obviously. Yeah. It is tough staying there, but it depends on the mindset that you have. Like, if you don't focus on, I have to be there, I have to be here. Like, and you just go day to day and you do as the best you can for that day. I just, I remember my first like couple months with the national team um, and I guess I took a leave of absence from college the end of my senior year. So I guess I went there January of 2000. I moved to Colorado Springs mm. and that's like six months out from Sydney Olympics. I had no plans to go to Sydney. I wanted to get my foot in the door, my name on the list for Athens in 2004. Right. And um I just remember being in the gym and like not caring, like just having fun and like being loud and talking and things like all stuff that just happens to make a good teammate <laughs> when you're working with like five other people in a closed confined space, trying to keep a ball off the ground. Um, so it was the communication that I had a blast doing that. Like growing up, I was a competitive swimmer and that was one of the things I liked when I transitioned from swimming to volleyball was I could talk in practice. Because like, when I'm swimming, like my face is in the water, yeah. and I can't talk to anybody. So it's just lap after lap and silence and you're in your own head and things like that. So it was a really nice release for me to be in a practice gym and a culture where I could talk and have fun and laugh and smile. Um, 
And so I just, I don't know, but like it, it was a really interesting jump. And I think some people are intimidated by it, but I think also like if you go into it, knowing that you're learning and you're vulnerable enough to learn and, and be okay with it, you're going to be fine. And I think that's for any sport, but you have to be okay not knowing it all and knowing that you have a long way to go and, and trusting the people there and being able to ask for help to develop and learn. But it, like, it sounds like it's one of those things where, you know, like you said, people, anytime like you do something like that, whether like you're going into a high level competition or like you're trying out for a team or this, that, and the other, if you're nervous, you put that stress on yourself. Like you're not at your peak performance. And it just no. kind of came out where you were just like, you didn't really care. Like that wasn't yeah. even your goal. Like you're just there. Like I'm taking the opportunity to just be here but you didn't care about the outcome and like you came out on top instead of the one person that's super stressed, like anal retentive, yelling at people for mistakes. You're just kind of like goofing around. Well, I was, I wouldn't say goofing around, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. Like it was, it was definitely lighter on me than maybe some other players. Um, because of that, because I, I focused on the opportunity and, and nothing was really a setback because I didn't really have a benchmark for anything. Uh, so, so Sydney I mean, was the first one you did. Yeah. yeah. So what like went through your head when you got like the phone call or like, did they call you? Did they sit you down to like, Hey, you're going. No. Well, so each coach was different, but it's always just a meeting with the coaching staff and they go through. So they don't technically consider it the Olympic team unless it's an Olympic year. Mm-hmm. And then they name the Olympic team like a month, like for volleyball, I think it's about a month out from when you leave for the games. Um, but the coaches would generally just have a meeting with all the coaching staff and each player would come in one by one and they say whether you made it or not. And, um, it was a shock. Like I wasn't expecting it. I had got, I had finally earned a starting position. So, but you still, you don't know what that means. And definitely it's because I was a starter when I was not selected for the team too. So it, it never is guaranteed for anything. It just kind of depends on what the coach sees for the direction of the program at that point in time. And, you know, the mesh of personalities and things like that and what they kind of want. Um, but yeah, so it was myself and two other college players. Um, Carrie, Carrie is my same grade, so she just graduated Stanford, and then Logan was a freshman at Stanford, and everybody else was out of college. Um, but we were the three youngins on the 2000 team. So, but how did they tell you? Like, just. I honestly don't remember. I think, I mean, it's just pretty much like we we nominated you to go or, you know, you made the team and stuff like that. I feel like that's like a life-changing moment. They would probably like be cemented in your head. Not like, yeah, I don't remember exactly how it was worded. I remember London. <laughs> oh my gosh. But that's, you know, the one that sticks out because I, I wasn't selected. Um, but the other ones, I, Beijing was tough. Like, I was kind of the coach was on the fence between me and another player. And I remember my, my roommate at the time, we had a very intense cry session. <laughs> you know, just because there's so much anxiety that comes and you don't, like, your body just doesn't know what to do. And the only thing we could do is cry. I don't know if that's the female in us or what. But... Um, yeah, I mean each one's different. You kind of I kind of knew I think for Athens 
because the team had been growing, we were number one in the world. Like we had our starting six and the coach kind of kept with it. So that one was kind of okay. Like, I don't remember that at all. I think it was just kind of, I knew it was coming. So I, it didn't stick out in my head. Um, That's kind of presumptuous, isn't it? And I don't mean it in a bad way, but you know, when you're doing everything you can, and you're doing your job. Plus you have seniority. Well, yeah, I had the experience, but that really doesn't matter because, again, like I said, like it depends on what the coach sees for the program at that point in time, um, you know. But we were, we were a good team. We unfortunately self destructed on ourselves uh, in Athens, but uh, we had a great group of athletes. We had a good trainer. Um, Why do you say that you guys self destructed? We. we did not play well when we needed to. And that was all on us. Um, just things that we needed to execute. We weren't games. We weren't playing crisp. Um, we lost, we lost those games. We lost those matches. They, other teams didn't win them. Um, like and that's they didn't something, win, you lost. Yeah. Like, I mean, they played well, but we were definitely the superior program at that time. Yeah. But we just, I mean, and we had, and I still remember, like, we had meetings at the Olympics with the softball team. Like, they came in and, like, we had some exchange of, like, Skittles was, like, their secret thing. And, um, you know, every team has their little quirks. But right. they came in and tried to give us leadership advice and just dealing with the pressures of being number one in the world. Because in, in Sydney, we were, like, 10th in the world. And we finished in fourth. And then in... Athens, we were number one in the world, and we finished fifth. And then Beijing, I want to say we were like third in the world, and we finished second. I mean, there's very few sports where seldomly like that number sticks. Like number one is number one. Like if you know if you're playing USA basketball, like it's guaranteed you're number one. Like there's there's not close competition to it. You might have some close competition on the like the beginning stages, but you know where it's at. Like, I feel like volleyball, like, I can't really say. Maybe, like, if you went with teams like, you know, Italy and Brazil and stuff like that, where you're like, okay, they're definitely one or two, one or three or whatever, like, spots. Like, that changes. Like, number one is not guaranteed to finish number one. No, and that's true. And I th- and, and we have so many tournaments throughout the, the quad that – it, it varies, but you kind of know like towards the end of the quad because of the finishes, kind of who's the best team, who's had the most success in, you know, because you only get to learn really the pressures of playing in a finals by playing in a finals. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's, just, that's just how it is. And so if you have these teams and these programs that are constantly having that, that exposure and that experience, regardless of they have developed players or underdeveloped players, like – they're going to get used to that pressure in that environment. And you can't train for that. So the more you can do that throughout the quad, the better off you're going to be when it comes to the ultimate like Olympic um, tournament. So, I mean, but like world rankings, yeah, it's, it's tough to base, you know, cause you never know, like a player may have an off day and the good thing and the cool thing I think about volleyball and maybe it's just cause I played it for so long. Like, it's not a sport where just one person is going to win a game for you. Yeah, they may help with the score, but they're not going to win a game because it's so dependent on a complete team concept. Where like with basketball or soccer, like you can have one standout player and they will make the difference and win the game. Like it, there's no way people can stop them. Yeah. 
with volleyball, you have to have a competent core, like to be able to function and function consistently at a high level because you have to, I mean, you could do it with two people, but there's, you, it's just, it's, it's a cool sport to play because you really do have to function as a team. Well, I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy to, if you look at it, I mean, I guess you could say it with like any team sport, but especially with volleyball, because it's such a small court with so many people on it. And, you know, you might just be hitting like a big ball, but you like, you have to have quick reaction time. So you have to have a, a tight knit team. Like it's like a really fast chess game. You have to mm-hmm. be able to respond and people don't play the roles. Like, yeah, the whole thing is going to come down. Yeah. You have to anticipate. And I think that's one thing like younger players, you'll see them struggling. And as they learn, to literally read the game and they develop that skill and then they can learn to anticipate because they know by the position of the opponent or, you know, what they've done on the previous play to what the opponent's options are. And so it is, like you say, it's, it's, it's a chess match. And that's how, as I got older in my career, I would look at it that way, like knowing, okay, if that person, whether it's serving or whatever, you serve to one person and you know that they're getting taken out of the, the position or the, whatever the scheme is that they're trying to play or in offense, if you tip a ball where you're not hitting it as hard or you're role shutting it to a certain person and, you know, they have difficulty in defense. And so then it's going to be an out of system play and things yeah. like that you can kind of set it up so that you're in an advantage. Um, young players, they don't know that. Yeah, yet. They, they haven't gotten that skills. deep yet. They haven't, they haven't learned that side of it. Cause yeah, I mean, it's with any sport, like there's the physical side and then there's the mental side and how aware are you and how fast paced is your awareness to be in that moment and to be proactive in it and not reactive to what's happening to you and that's i think what is makes a big difference between in any sport between a champion and a non-winner if you're wondering what that noise was the dog <laughs> oh puppy's dreaming yeah it sounded like a little squeaky toy it's funny <laughs> so that's kind of like really um the the thing that i wanted to to start getting into is you know, a big thing, and we've had this conversation before about the real mindset of an athlete, regardless of the sport. You know, obviously, what I have to worry about competing is completely different. And granted, I have never competed in anything remotely close to what you haven't, but I feel like the mindset is the same. It's just the amount of pressure that's different. Do you feel that the higher up you got, the closer you got to the final like game, the the more you had to like prepare mentally or was it one of those things that like you had your routine, this is what I need to check, this is what I got to look at to stay focused? I, for me, it was the same mental mindset and developmental mindset the entire time. Like obviously that developed and and improved over the course of my career because I learned new techniques and working with sports psychologists and things like that. But every game for me was the same depending, didn't, didn't matter if the team we were playing was a hundred in the world or first in the world, like they still deserved 100% of my effort mentally and physically. And so, and I think that was a good thing with what all of our, athletes on the USA team do they don't go easy on a team because you know 
I just don't, I don't think that's fair to that other athlete. Like they are there and they want to compete and they're giving their best. So who is it for us to say that, you know, we're not going to be as focused or we're not going to be as ready going through video scouting teams, understanding like for me in my position, I was a middle blocker. So like understanding what the set, the setters tendencies are, where their hitters tendencies are, maybe they're not as athletic. I mean, Cuban team is pretty freaking athletic. They can jump and hit some really heavy balls. So yeah, my game plan would change from team to team, but my mental preparation and my respect for the opponent, and it didn't matter whether it was an Olympic tournament, a World Cup, a Grand Prix, whatever it was, even like a zone Norseca thing. If we go to the Dominican, we're playing Cuba, Canada, Mexico, Barbados, whoever it is they still deserve 100% of your effort and respect. And so that was one thing that I always tried to do. And my mindset and preparation was always the same. I needed to know what they were doing. Because if you're not paying attention, like I was just saying before, like you don't want to be reactive to anything. You always want to anticipate and understand and see what's, what's developing and what's evolving during the game. And then if you need to make changes, you can make changes on the fly. And that's, you know, when we're in practice, yes, I can talk to my coaches or in a timeout, but when we're on the floor, you're on your own. Yeah, you don't, you, and that's not the time. And that's one thing I tried to instill in my junior players that I coached, like they would make an error and they would immediately stare at me. I'm like, I can't do anything for, you know, like you have the, like the, the discipline and you have the technique, you know what you're doing wrong. Like, don't look at me. (laughs) You can do this. You need at that point. And I kept telling them over and over. It's like, at that point, you need to look at your teammates. Your teammates can help you in that point. If it's in practice. Yeah. I can stop a drill. I can talk about it. We can do reps and I can hit the same ball or we can make, you know, a correction drill or whatever it may be. But in a game, like you have to be able almost self coach. Yeah. Well, I mean, you get, coaches for like basketball that's one of the big things for for phil jackson is that you watch him like he doesn't coach he doesn't yell at people very often you don't need it his big philosophy was always like you got to let the players play because they you do it from the first game of the season and then you go 100 games deep and you're in the finals whatever you say isn't going to change anything if they're not if they've not developed and understood the moment they can't play in it if they don't know how to control the Emotions. The emotions and the, the fight or flight mode or like the adrenaline. Right. Like the, no matter what you say, it won't matter. It won't well, matter. and it's interesting to see like how many players when they're younger, they always want to blame an external force. Is that and the ice cream not- truck passing by? No, I think it's our clock. Uh, but like, why you want some ice cream? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> but it's like you have this locus of control and it's like internal, external. When they're young, they have this external like, oh, it's her fault. It's your fault. It's this. It's the ball's fault really it's an inanimate object's fault like no like you have to be able to be aware enough to know and to allow things to affect you and you control what you could control everything else you just got to learn to let it go i mean you never heard the phrase the ball don't lie me the ball don't lie if you suck you suck (laughs) we always use that as like if somebody makes an error and the ref calls it and you lie about it and then they get the next point that's just like a validation of what the previous point was so So, wait so you you kind of hinted at before that you did uh work with uh like sports psychologists and i know a big thing that what you do even with your career now post olympics is 
excuse me, is deal with athletes and helping them with their mindset and, and, you know, teams, not just individuals, but team as well. It's kind of like working together as a group from your experience, let's say just facing or keeping in mind, just the Olympic team. Like what do you see is kind of a, an average issue that players have, like something that's like, it would surprise you how many people have the exact same issue mentally preparing or even mentally coping in a, in a match. Oh, I think, I think the self-confidence is probably the number one surprising because you would think that a player at that level would be uber confident themselves. And even leading into the London games, like there are numerous younger players that were on the roster, like to be on the, in the, on the team on the Olympic team. And they had confidence issues. And I still remember, like I had told one of our assistant coaches, I said, this particular player is struggling. Like you need to talk to her about it. Cause she was phenomenal. And it's crazy. Like you don't see, you would never imagine like the spectators and the people that watch and, and that's even now when I watch the games, like you see this, the high point, you know, but you don't know everything else that's gone into it and how many of those athletes are terrified, you know? And, it, and, and again, it's some of them, it's like that post-traumatic stress instead of the post-traumatic growth. Like, what are you doing with that opportunity? Even if it's a setback, like that's your choice to look at it as God, I'm a failure and now I'm terrified to ever do it again or okay, that sucked, but I can be better and this is where I can improve. Um, But I would say that the self-confidence would probably be the number one surprising factor for me, like at an elite level. And that's across the board, like even in my pro teams, like you had girls that couldn't do certain skills and it was just because of a mental block. Like I went through it too, like with setting and serving, like it's at different times you just kind of have to let go and like know that you're good enough and it's okay. And if you're not good enough, it's still okay because the other women on the floor with you, it's their job to make you better and to make it okay that you're having an off night. So you don't have to carry the team every day and, and every skill. Like there's people there to balance it out. And on the average of the group, you just need to be better than the team across the net. But the, in that too, like the majority of the time, the teams I were on, especially with the U.S. team, we weren't just battling the opponent. We were battling ourselves. Yeah. So to get through that barrier, because, I mean, it's hard enough to play against someone else, but to put yourself and that person as a as an opponent, like you're really in the hole. <laughs> but do you feel it would be better – like a better, I guess the lesser two evils to be underconfident rather than overconfident in yourself. Because I feel like if you're underconfident, you're at least going to work harder than if you're overconfident and you're just going to feel like, oh, I don't need to work as hard because I'm already good. I don't know. I think there is a healthy balance to find. I think if I only had those two choices, I would agree. I'd rather be the underdog like, and be underconfident and know that I still have so much more to go. But I know for me personally, I had always set the bar at the day I stop learning is the day I retire. 
which is never, never stop learning. Like, so I knew that, but it also got to a point where I knew other things in my life were becoming to be more important. But I think the drive and the, the thirst to be better. And it's not to say that overconfident people don't have that as well. I just think that it's more of a driver for those that maybe lack um, the confidence. And if they find it in their sphere of influence or if it's their support system or whatever it may be that pushes them through, um, you know, if I only had those two options, I think I would take the lesser of the two. Yeah, I guess it does. For me, I, I do believe that it becomes like a balance because you do run the risk if you're you're not sure in yourself that where you just are willing to give up. Like if you're yeah, you just, you just become you have scared, to you're not, not be there yet and be okay and understand that your journey like is kind of just you have beginning. to be like you have to have that balance, but be sure that like you have heart. I think it, it always comes down to having heart because you, whether you're overconfident or under, like as long as you're willing to put in the work and trying hard, yeah. I think you're still okay. I mean, you know, you get guys like like Kobe Bryant. Like obviously he was super confident in himself. And at first when he was young, he was super cocky. But then obviously he got more confident and less cocky and just more sure of himself. Yeah, but he also like, put hours and hours and hours in the gym. Oh, thousands. Yeah. Like so thousands. you have that kind of person who's earned it through repetition. Um you know, the confidence level. And, and, but even that, like he never, it was, I mean, he didn't have perfect games still had, of course. He, everybody still has air. So no matter how confident you are, there's still room to improve. So if you look at it from that side, then there is no overconfident individual in a developmental standpoint, you know, cause it's just in a stagnant point. Yeah. So when you work with, with these, like athletes because you also do a lot of like teaching for like kids and mm -hmm. stuff like that or coaching like what's your your first approach at fixing something like that where you can tell the person is just you know they're talented they, they're gifted they might not like be anywhere near their max peak potential. yeah but then you can tell it's like man if i don't fix this problem with this confidence like you're just literally going to be throwing away like your potential well it's tough because it i can have all the conversations and give all of the anecdotes and the stories that i want but if they personally don't want it or don't see it there's not a lot that's in my control um but you know like working with young players and developmental um whether it's in the classroom or whether it's in the sporting arena i think you just kind of have to see what they're ready for and the message that they're ready to hear. Um, everybody's on their own journey at their own pace. And it's like even, you know, last year I had an athlete. She was phenomenal, but she was timid. And there's nothing to say with you can't be timid when you're a great player, but it helps sometimes to not be as passive. And it didn't matter what I did, how I talked to her, how I set up a drill in a game, like conversations – it just wasn't something that was in her like tool bag, you know? So it just wasn't in her DNA to go yeah, for it. But she was phenomenal. She was athletic. She had everything else. She was a leader off the court. She was funny and carefree and a great teammate. And it was surprising to me, like when she would get on the court, 
she was so timid and shy. I'm like, where is this girl that when we're at team dinners or we're on the road and we're doing this stuff, like she's the loudest, most boisterous person. Give me her. Where is she at on the court? Like your teammates need that. And that was something that was a huge selling point. Like she had that in spades, like, but she didn't want to apply it on the court. And I don't know. And it took, I mean, it even got to the point where, and I don't yell. And you had mentioned before about, you know, coaches that yell and things like that. They, my players will actually come to me and be like, can you just like yell at us to motivate us? And I was like, uh, no, (laughs) but I don't think I should need to raise my voice to you. Like I know you're developing. There's no reason I should get angry with you. Everybody develops at a different pace, whether we're doing motor skills or whether we're doing social skills, whatever it is, like if you have the awareness and you're going through like the, um, what's it called? Like the, uh, I'm totally blanking on the word, but it's like the progression through uh, competency. And it's like this unaware, unconscious. So you really have no idea. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And then you have this aware, aware, unconscious where like, okay, now you're aware that you didn't know it. And then, you know, moving to the next level where you're aware and you're conscious of, you know, whatever. Right. And, so it's like for me in the development of players, whether it's motor skill or or social, like you kind of have to go through those phases and just kind of have the conversations first and talk to them about it and say, okay, you know, this is, you know, we're developing, we're, we're working on this and however you want to frame it and whatever coach you're working with or even if other people listening are working with younger athletes, like understanding what language they have that you can have a common understanding of that process. You have to be a full-on psychologist to be a good coach. Like he, I don't think you have to be a full-on one. You have to understand definitely like behavioral psychologist, development. Um, I mean, it's – You just have to be a good person, well, really. You have to know what kind of like some, – some people – excuse me, like you said, like some people you can pull certain strings that other people you can't. No. You know, like for me, I know that if I had a coach yell at me for sure, like it would push me, but – I was never one person to to need that because I pushed myself enough. It would hurt me more. You would actually lose respect for that coach if they did that to you. Well, you you become um, what's the word like you you resent them almost. You become resentful. Like I know what I'm doing. It's like just being like kid like any other time. Well, and then that gives you a fixed mindset because you're no longer willing to grow for that coach or be better. Well, instead of like if you have a coach that you full on respect and all of a sudden he's just like I just don't want to talk to you right now. Then you're like oh oh, okay, then I messed up. Like, why did I mess up? Like, okay, what do I need to do? Like, for me, that's that way. Other, some people just, you know, you have to pull certain strings. Like some people, you can only get the best out of them if you yell at them and scream at them. And it's just kind of, it's a, it's, that's why I say like, I see it as you have to have that mastermind of being able to read people. So you know how to manipulate them. I mean, that's like what Phil Jackson did. I mean, he was manipulative. Like he would do all sorts of weird things. You're still manipulating to get a certain response from an athlete. You're conditioning them. You're not manipulating them. No, because you still have to – like you you know what you need to do to get the best out you of a certain person. You know the variables person. at play. You know the variables at play and you know what buttons to push. I just How's think that manip- not I know, but manipulation just sounds so negative. Um, I think, I mean, there's guidance, and because a lot of athletes know the answer, like they know what they need to be doing, and and I mean, even with the retention of learning, and you talk about you know reading things and seeing things, and 
acting them out and speaking and, you know, and when you can get somebody to literally think about it and respond or um, repeat what you're saying, the retention is so much higher. So if you're really wanting somebody to learn and it's the Socratic method is what it's called, like Socratic teaching, and you're, you're pretty much just guiding them. And it's almost as a mentor kind of, and I think that's more of what Phil kind of fills with his coaching techniques is, is the guiding, the guiding coach and getting them to understand. So then there's, and then that's why he doesn't have to coach yeah. at a certain point in the season. I mean, he's, he's known for having done like some of the weirdest stuff. Like I know players, would come in at the beginning of the games and they would have like incense going and have like certain <laughs> music going. And, you know, he would force players to like meditate. He would like sit there and be like, you're all going to meditate and visualize and this that, and the other. I mean, he did a lot of stuff that's non-conventional. And I mean, he had some of the best teams like in NBA history, like hands down, you know? So like my question for you is then when – when someone comes to you and they say like, Hey, I need help. Like, do you, do you sit there and throw them like stories of like, you know, like this is what we did. Like when we had a game that, you know, like you're drawing from your own pool of stories from when you competed. I think in some respects, yes, but it's, it's because it's, it, if they're coming to me from an athlete perspective or even like training, like aspiring Olympians, like going through that process, the pressures and the things and the questions that they have of, you know, how to deal with teammates, how to deal with coaches, how to deal with injuries. Um, obviously it's specific to them and their situations. So, you know, I have to sit and listen to that to know how to frame it because just to tell them, well, when I did this and I did that and it worked for me, so it should work for you, that's never going to happen. You're, there's too many moving parts and everybody's different and nobody's on the same journey. So you have to really be able to understand from their perspective what is really going on. And sometimes what they're asking you isn't even what they're asking you. It's in what they're not asking. And so to be a very good listener and to really understand what is it that they want. What is it that they're really like looking to have as the outcome of this? Is it, you know, is it just information? Is it a behavioral change? Do they want to know how to work with someone else? Like, do they want to change themselves? Like, what is it that is really the root cause and not just a symptom of whatever this issue may be? So then what do you think is maybe people don't know but what do you feel is the biggest hurdle that you have to get over like mentally as an Olympic level athlete? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, because I mean, you guys have to deal with stuff that not every athlete of other random sports would have to do outside of the Olympics. Like there's things that you got to deal with. I feel like obviously like you got a you got more politics pushing around you. You have more, you know, and even more so the last couple of years, like things that you gotta worry about, like corruption wise and, and certain things you have to go through. Like wh what is it that, that really kind of gives you guys that little bit of extra something that separates you from other athletes? 
Gosh, I don't know. That's going to be like a dead space on the radio. Um, (laughs) No, I think for me, it's the sacrifice. Um, I think Olympic athletes are willing to sacrifice a lot more or elite level athletes are are willing to sacrifice a lot more uh, in their personal lives and in their working relationships um, than other athletes like even just the time put in like the training the traveling and the, and the the scheduling and um the discipline and the, like all of that i think it's just kind of at a different level like there was an article uh, i was reading it the other day just about they did a scientific study on the brain of an olympic gold medalist and it's like it's cool that they can break that down and see like just on a cognitive level and a neuroscience level, like how the brain functions differently because the unique talents that have been wired over time, the habits that these people have built are different than anyone else. Um, And I'm a science geek, so I love it when anything can be explained like on that level. And so it's just, it's super cool. But I think just the sacrifices and the choices that they make that sometimes they put their sport or they put in, in a lot of sports obviously are individual and they'll travel individually and, and compete individually, even though they're on a, a said team. But like with volleyball, you literally will sacrifice your free time or other things. And it's for the betterment of someone outside yourself. And so I think that's, that's what makes, you know, true team sports, really special is because not only is that person sacrificing their free time and their family time and you know their relationships and things like that for the betterment of their sport but it's also for the betterment of someone other than themselves to make sure that they yeah because i don't think people realize like you guys don't get paid you get paid paid, (laughs) but it's but it's not like i mean it's not like going to get a a nine-to-five job and working in a career and and going up the career ladder and getting you know but there's there's some fairly good contracts uh overseas well i mean for the olympics though like you're not getting paid to to compete in the olympics we get a stipend from our grant from the usoc um, it depends on sport to sport. Some and in some countries yeah. they don't. Well, some always, countries it's just off of company sponsors or like whatever it. Like makes. I always heard the stories of like Russian or Polish, or whatever, like uh, power lifters or whatever. Like they come back with a gold medal and they never have to work again because they just become like the darlings of like the government. Well, there's some countries, and I have a friend that ran track um, for Trinidad, and they actually, they win a gold medal, they get a house. They get paid in a house. Or like other countries, like you get a gold medal, you get 100 grand. Yeah. I mean, we have uh, bonuses for our, yeah, our bonuses from the USOC, like the monetary bonus that you get. And that was a big thing. Might have been after London. I don't think it was Rio, but they were talking about the tax exempt bonuses for the Olympic medals. And it came around again now with Pyeongchang. Like they're saying that the American athletes that are getting medals, they don't have to pay tax on it. Um, so I mean, we have. So some, you got where you got taxed for winning a medal? Yeah, it was taxes income. It's not any longer, but it was. 
So like I give you this medal now, like I get to like, you got to pay for it. Like, well, essentially mean? like you win, they don't, they don't pay you for the medal. You're in the medal and then they pay you like the, the USOC or the US government. Like they, it's actually the USOC, I believe. Oh, you get taxed they for what? They give me yeah. a bonus. Right. And so that bonus is in tax exempt. Taxes. Now it is, but before it was taxed as income as an athlete. Cause it's a bonus that you won. Where was that 10 years ago? Yeah, for real. I wish I would have had that. A couple more bucks in your bank, you know. Could this be retroactive? Um, but yeah, so now they they finally have cleared that up. So they and they were posting uh, stories and stuff about it for the Pyeongchang. But athletes. what about like you see these uh, like 15, 16, 17 year old like kids out there? Like, do you think that's that's got to be way too much stress for them? But they choose to put themselves in that situation. Do they though? I mean, it. De- I guess that's a fair question. It does depend on the parents because there are some documentaries that have some very um, like back in the day, the ambitious gymnasts. and passionate parents that push their kids. But at the end of the day, and again, this may not be true. Like, but I, for me, I feel like at the end of the day, the athletes that will succeed the longest for the longevity are actually the ones that want to be there. And they do enjoy it. Yeah, the pressure or maybe, you know, because like even for me when I competed, the majority of the reason that I competed was because I knew it made my parents proud. They didn't push me to play or travel or, or do all of the training and stuff like that. I enjoyed that. But at the same time, one of my main drivers was because I knew the connection that it gave me to them and the pride that they had in me representing the USA. Um, You know, but I know there are parents out there that are a little bit, let's say passionate for, you know, their kids to do well, put it in a nice term. And I, I genuinely feel bad for those kids because they don't get to have the full um, experience of how great sports can be. Yeah, they're not they're not going at it with the uh, the joy of the win. It's almost like the fear of the loss is what they're yeah. Living with. Well, it's like before you were talking about heart, like having a heart, and that's the difference. You know, like do they ever ever really get to develop that heart aspect? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, that's why I see it. Like, it really comes down to. You know, some of these kids, it's like it's out of fear of losing, of what's going to happen when they lose. Cause, I mean, like back in the day, it's like, you know, when you had to deal with with like the Russian gymnasts or like European gymnasts where it's like they've been doing this since they were like three. And yeah. their family literally depends on this because if she wins that gold medal, then, yeah, they're going to get that house and they're yeah. going to live a little bit easier. Now it's kind of really just – not for everybody. I, I think some sports, you know, like we talked about, have more of the you have to make the sacrifices and you have to be in that sport because you love it. And other ones are just kind of like they're the popular ones and there's people that are good at it, but they might not be super passionate about it. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's like with the young kids and, and this is one thing like with coaching youth sports, for me – and again, there's an article, and I don't remember how long ago it was, but a couple of my coaching friends have brought it up over time too. But it's about kids tend to quit sports because of the car ride home. 
not because they're unhappy playing, but it's the time after the match or the game or whatever it is where they have to get the feedback from the parent. And that's why they stop playing. That's why they lose the interest. That's why they lose the passion. For sure. I mean, and I think that's such a shame. Cause like, like if you want to see a, a great example of how shitty some parents can be, just come to a jujitsu tournament and watch. Oh, no. And it, it sucks. Like I'm, you know, like it, like I could joke around about it, but no, it's that not serious. all of them are like that, obviously. All the parents you mean? Yeah, no, 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 not all, all of the them. parents, but it's a, it's a very blatant and very like disturbing sight to see when, you know, like obviously you can watch parents at like little like peewee football league or something like that <laughs> going off. But when you see it at something like as a one-on-one sport, when you tell a six, seven, eight-year-old like you're going to go out there and I'm letting you loose on another kid. Like you're your baby. Like these these are babies, and you're putting them out there, and you say you need to go and you need to take this kid's arm, or you need to try and choke him. And then, like first of all, you're already teaching a kid combat from an early on age. And granted, it's jujitsu, like it's a little bit safer for sure. But I mean, these kids. I mean, I've seen some that are somehow have amazing control of their bodies, and I see other ones that are worse than I was, and they just flop around, kind of thing. You know. <laughs> but, Afterwards, you see the parents like in their face, like it's a grown man or like woman, and they're just finger on the chest, like you fucked up. I told you to do this. We drilled the shit out of this. Why didn't you do this? Like, hey, bud, let it go. You know, it's like it's a fifty dollar tournament. You get like a medal. Like this kid's not going to get sponsored. He's not going to go to college off of this thing. And it's the that's why I like a hundred percent see that, especially. Well, at that point, I think there's just there's a lot of projection sometimes sure. of the I'm parent. Yeah, the projection of what the parent wants or the image that the parent wants, and you had your yeah. time, you had your opportunity to do the sports. If if that's what you want, I mean, there's older people that do jujitsu, like yeah, I'm yeah. assuming. So it's not like they can't go out and learn and do it. And that's one thing, like, even with volleyball, like, parents that don't fully understand the intricacies of the sport, the fundamentals of the sport, how difficult the sport actually is. Why isn't my daughter playing? Well, yeah, and they're uh, like, oh, well, they're so much better than that player. or that, And then they'll be like, oh, this – and they'll try to chirp in. And it's like, we need to get you on the court. Your kid is going to coach you how to play this game yeah good luck with it well no but like after that like the parents really understand and they're like oh that is tough so then you actually see the growth of the community or the membership being like oh and there's congratulations to other parents on their daughter's play or their son's play because they understand the difficulty that's involved and so, like, I just think that's a really cool developmental exercise. And I think you could do that with any sport is the parents need to try the sport to understand what it is. And if you can get it to a point where the athlete is actually coaching mm. them, it, there's just a flip of a switch. Like, it's, it's interesting to see, like, the change. Like the, oh, in shit. The like, yeah. In the behavior, like, yeah, now I know this isn't as easy because it's always easy to say. And it's like emotions when you're in something. Like, it's always easier to give advice than it is to take your own advice. So, yeah, it's easy for a parent to sit there and berate or yell at or criticize or critique or quote-unquote coach their child. Have they played the sport? Have they been in their child's shoes, in their developmental state? As adolescents, we're not secure in ourselves. 
So now they're trying to please their parents, play with this. And if they don't like the sport or they don't really want to be there anyways, then they're probably like freaking out in their head and can't remember anything. And then they know that car ride home, they're going to get torn to shit. Like, so it's like, oh, this is going to suck. Yeah. So where's the incentive to be like, tomorrow I want to go back and do that again. That makes my soul sore. Yeah. Like, have you have you done that exercise before where you like make the parents go out on the court? We had it and I haven't partaken in it, but we had it at a high school mm-hmm. and they were just telling me about it. And I was like, oh my God, that would be the best thing to AC. But I think just the behavioral change after would be exactly the type of culture that you need to instill in younger players. And especially like, I mean, junior volleyball in the States is huge. It's ridiculous how many kids play. And even like when I was coaching, like going to travel tournaments and things like that and seeing different coaches and seeing different parents and the way they react on the sidelines. And I, it just makes me giggle. Like it always has, like even at the elite level, there was, (laughs) there was a famous coach in Russia um, Nikolai Korpol, and he was called the Howling Bear or something was his nickname. And you can YouTube him, but he like would turn red in the face, veins popping, like yelling in Russian. And obviously, I, I don't speak Russian well enough to know what he's saying, but like just to see him go berserk at every time out or at any player. And I'm like, how is that productive? And then you just, you watch the players' faces and they're like stone face looking away. Like they don't even look at him. Like, so he's pretty much just doing this to get his own blood pressure up. Yeah. <laughs> it's like nothing comes from it. But I mean, different cultures deal with it in different ways. But I mean, watching the coaches from the other national teams and then other professional teams that I would play against, like I would always laugh when they get super animated or yell or whatever. Like it's a game. Yeah. Well, you know, like I look, I totally agree and I'm a competitive person. So it's like, it's a game, but I'm going to be super focused on it. But I still, I still come with the mindset of, you know, some people don't have anything and this is their way out. So I feel like sometimes it's the parents putting too much pressure on the, like on the kid, like saying like, you have to do this. Like if you ever want to make anything out of your life or, you know, maybe they didn't get anything out of like their life and they're living vicariously through the kid. Right. And they know yeah. that that's the only out. I mean, like so many football players have that story. So oh, many soccer players that have, you know, generational pressure. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I know tons of, of, you know, MMA fighters and jujitsu guys that like they had nothing. And jiu-jitsu was managed to get them to start traveling the world, doing seminars, winning tournaments and stuff like that. They might not be like super rich, but But they made a life for themselves and that's awesome. They made a life and it's, you know, and I say it and like you've heard me say before, like everything that I've been able to experience the last, geez, like what, four or five years of my life now. It's because of jiu-jitsu. It's because I dedicated so much to jiu-jitsu. And, you know, like I said, we talked about this before where I see so many people like gunning for my spot of like even just taking photos and stuff like that. And it's like, no man, you didn't sacrifice as much as I did to get here. Like from day one of like even outside of jujitsu, like I busted my ass to be here, to be here. And I'm fortunate enough to have been able to have friends where it's gotten me to this point. Right. There's a lot of people like, Oh, I'm all about jujitsu, blah, blah, blah. It's like, right. Well, I haven't seen you skipping out, going to party. Like, 
you well, that's the party thing. They're not ready. Yeah. yeah, they're not ready to sacrifice, but they're there with their hand out when it's payday. And I mean, that's going back to, you know, when you asked about what the difference with an elite athlete, you know, on an Olympic level or whatever, if, if that's the, uh, the upper echelon of their, of their sport, it comes down to what are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to do when nobody's watching? Like those that put in the time and those that grind, they're going to get there. It might not be tomorrow. But slow and steady wins the race. They're going to get there. Like, it's not just a flash in the pan because, and like with you, like there's so much more meaning to what it is. And like when you get to compete or when you get to get, when you have that break, you're so much more appreciative because you've been through the experiences and you've, you've earned it. And that was one thing like that was tough for me, like working with some of the younger kids is there, and I know it's just semantics, but like their word choice of saying, we deserve it. Yeah. No, you don't deserve anything. You earn your right. Nobody owes you shit. This is a privilege, not a right. Like you have earned the right to be here by putting in the time, by sacrificing for your teammates, by being good human beings. You know, like, uh, because even with that, like, as you go higher and higher in the level of athletes, they're all really good people. Yeah. Well, I mean, more majority. Okay. Yeah. I guess I shouldn't say they're all, but majority of them are solid human beings. You may have a trickle of one or two, but when you get to the level where they've learned to sacrifice what they've sacrificed to get where they are, they're driven and they're good human people and they're human people. Wow. Nice. They're human beings. <laughs> nice. Better you than lizard be, people. You can be human people, but like they, um, they just have that ability to, you know, understand other people's struggles because they've been there and you don't get that from people that maybe don't put in the time yeah. or the effort. Well, they don't appreciate it. As yeah. Much. They definitely don't appreciate yeah. it. Um, That's the one much. thing I always, always like hearing is that overnight success took years of hard work. Absolutely. You know, like people just see like, oh, he won this. And did you see the play that he made? And then you don't realize like this guy worked his way up the ranks and he was living like in the mats, like in the gym and stuff like that. Yeah. So they were talking, there was a thing on Usain Bolt um, about they broke down about the money he made off of running and he's ran less than two minutes. Yeah. So it was like a million dollars a second or something like that. And they say, you know, that's a return on the investment, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But they don't talk about the 20 years before those, whatever, eight to 10 up early in the morning running that it took him, yeah. yeah. That it took him to actually get there. So when people want to break it down they say, Oh, he makes, you know, for those, whatever the, Olympic cities ran and the amount of time that it takes him to run his races, it's less than two minutes yeah. and he's made all these millions of dollars. So they break it down just off of those two minutes. Well, that's what you see on TV. Yeah. That's not what he's been doing for 20 years of his life, going to the track, going to the gym, traveling on an airplane, being on a bus, being away from his family. Well, away that's, from the, his like, friends. that's the problem. Like, especially, you know, I mean, I know it from, doing digital marketing and social media, like people only see the highlights. People only see you on the podium. People only see you at the award ceremony. People don't see you 
when you're like, fuck, like I'm sick, but I still got to go run my sprints. I still yeah, got to go Yeah, you don't get there. a day off. Like, yeah, there's, 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 you know, like you were saying, like people feel like they're owed. I think like you have the right to earn the privilege of competing. Right? Yeah, you, you don't definitely like, have to earn yourself yeah. earn, your, earn your place. Like I always laugh too, like, and I know like Sean Johnson, she's a gymnast and she got asked when she got a silver medal, you know, how did it feel losing the gold? And like, I have my silver medal and people ask that, like, how did it feel, you know, losing the gold medal? And it's like, I won a silver medal. Like, yeah, that's still nothing to scoff at. That's like, it's, it's a really cool privilege to stand on the podium. Yeah. My national anthem wasn't played, but still I got to stand on that podium because I won a silver medal. There's, there's just as many silver medals as there are gold medals. Yeah, but I mean, it's just, it's being there in that moment and earning the privilege to stand on that podium, regardless of your gold, silver, or bronze. I mean, ask anybody in fourth place. Yeah. What would they give to be, you know, they had... um, Three or two, not even just one. Yeah, like, but even just the split seconds, we had a couple of athletes, uh, I guess it was yesterday, there was like 0.03, 0.08 away from getting a a medal. That's nothing, yeah. but it's everything. Yeah. I know that yeah. that point oh eight is a lifetime. That point yeah. oh eight is a lifetime that point of regret. It is a lifetime. Well, not regret. I don't think they would regret it if they gave their all. Yeah. But it's a lifetime of training. It's a lifetime of sacrifice, and to know that that's what separated you from your ultimate goal. Because yeah, everybody's goal is gold, but you're just as like. Uh, happy and content with being on the podium. Is that something that I mean, like? I've never actually thought about this, but is that something that that is a thing? Like a post Olympic, you know, like um, stress, like disorder, kind of thing, like a depression. Like if you have like a postpartum depression, like to know that, like yeah, like point oh eight seconds less and I could have been a gold medalist and it's like I could have sat there and done that day or that day that I decided to skip because I was tired and lazy like that could have been the day that I earned that 0.08 it very well could be the driver for a lot of athletes that come back and and do another round um well no one wants to go out on a loss I did but you didn't go out on a loss. I'm I, saying like I, we're talking about like fourth or fifth and stuff like that. Right, but silver's still a loss. It depends on like – My last match in the Olympic Games, I lost. I still won a, a silver medal, but technically I went out on a loss. Yeah, but does does that like bother you <laughs> where you're like, I Not, wish I could do it again? Well, yeah. You always wish you could That's have done better. And you see – you go back and you watch tape and I've watched film of those matches and I'm like, God, what was I thinking? Like yeah. where was my head in that play? Like that – how many – how many plays would have turned the game and the momentum would have shifted? Like you never really know. And I'm sure like some athlete – and I guess it depends on, you know, the confidence level we were talking about before. Like if if they're okay with that and how they internalize and use that to their advantage or their disadvantage. You know, and that's going back before like the post-traumatic stress or the post-traumatic growth. What are you doing with that moment? Are you growing from it and knowing that that is something that you can learn from and improve? Or are you dwelling on it and letting it consume you? And that, I think, is another big difference between elite athletes and not. 
Like you're going to want to get better. That mistake or those naysayers or those people that tell you you can't, those are the ones that are driving you to be better instead of you believing them and being like, oh, I'm not good enough anyways. So, I mean, I see that so much, so much working with like all these MMA fighters and like competitors, the amount of people like shit talking, just the amount of just slobby, like just fat pieces of crap like sitting <laughs> oh, oh so keep your right hand up oh you're gonna get knocked out like man you have no idea like no idea i mean you know everybody has like their own like issues for like their own sports and like like you said the sacrifices but there's few people that i've seen that sacrifice as much as like high level professional MMA fighters on so many levels because you're throwing your body to the garbage. This is a hundred percent what you're doing on a daily basis, two, sometimes three times a day. You're, you know, unless you're one of the higher up guys where you're making tons of money, you're not really able to afford the medical bills and the food that you need to be eating to be top notch. Like it's, you know, everybody comes in to compete injured. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, whether it's yeah. something from this well, camp or before. That's the same at any high level. You're pushing your body to such an extent. Yeah, but how many, how many? It's body- not, I mean, it's, I'm not saying that it's to the same as an MMA fighter. They're, they're brutal on themselves. Right. But, but think, I about mean- it, think about it, even cutting weight. When have you ever heard of like a volleyball player that had to cut weight to compete? Well, that's not within our sport, but we have the weightlifters, right. we have the wrestlers, and we have all of that, that they do it too, and they still sure. go in. I mean, we would have so but would many you, people. Would you rather have to cut 20, 25 pounds to go and lift some weight or 25 pounds to go get punched in the face? I'll lift those weights up all day. <laughs> I'll cut if it avoids me getting punched by another 205-pound person. Yeah. Like, see, that's what I'm saying. Like, That's why it's like when – People say, oh, you know, they don't sacrifice as much as so-and-so. Like, no, everyone sacrifices to their own extent. Every, but yeah, every sport, there's there's sacrifice in every – I mean, in anything you do in life, there's some level of sacrifice if you want to be the best at it. Yeah. Whether it's – You have to you give know, up something. Corporate, yeah, if it's corporate America, if it's whatever it is, like you're going to ha- – you're not going to get it all. And those that think they do or they will – they're gravely mistaken. Like you're always going to have to sacrifice something that you wish you would have had or been able to do or missed out on. Yeah, that's why I like, I hate stupid shit. Like those like cardio kickboxing places, like nine round kickboxing or, or I love kickboxing.com. Like <laughs> I've never come in, oh, so stupid. Like you go in, you take like a 20 minute cardio kickboxing class and now they started giving away belts. So you could say, oh, I'm a – Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like you would like, oh, now I'm a black belt in kickboxing at nine-round kickboxing. Like, so it gives people like a false sense. Like they know what they're doing. Can you imagine if I sat there and decided to have some fake volleyball camp and like I've never played co- like competitively. Like I've never competed at like a world tournament or a Grand Prix or anything. And then I go out and coach people and say like, oh, you're good enough to go and like play in the Olympics. You'd be like, first you'd laugh in my face, and then be like, "You and I need to sit down and have a talk a little bit." You like, you know, you got a problem. Like, and that happens all the time, and even worse because, like, you're not only telling someone that they can do something at a high level, but you're also telling people if you need to, like, you could hurt somebody and you can defend yourself. Like, 
no, man, no, you can't. A hundred percent. Yeah. So like, if you're gonna sit there and live the life, you do have to sacrifice stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah. like, can you imagine if you went out to go play like beach volleyball, and you were just listening to someone brag about like, oh yeah, we played these other people the other day, we kicked their ass, like. That's happened before because a lot of people like out of it's out of context. You don't know who the person yeah. is. And so like even in L.A., like I play in a co-ed. Um, oh, but they're badasses. They're league, And I laugh because and it's like through the city and it's with friends. And so a friend of mine asked me to be a sub and I was like, sure, I'll come. And it's like co-ed, so there's guys and girl, whatever. And <laughs> the first couple of times I went, they, had, they didn't know who I was. Yeah. And it was like, how is, you know, why is she so good? Blah, blah, blah. And then my friend finally said, well, that's Heather Bow. And they're like, what? Yeah. Like, and then I laugh because I'm just like. Ego it's, trip. Yeah, but it's like there's these guys that like want to coach me. And I'm like, oh, it's okay. Like, yeah. I never make any side remark once. I'm like, oh, I've done this once or twice. Like, yeah. <laughs> but, oh, really? But you should have just kept it going. Really? Oh, yeah. I've been doing it. Yeah. I'm so blonde. I'm so blonde. I don't know what's going on. Um, but yeah, so it's funny, like you get into those situations and, and you just kind of have to let them have it. Cause that's, that's who they are. You're not going to change them. You're not going to change like the how baby they view themselves. Yeah. You're not going to change how they view themselves. And, um, that's, those are like those weekend warriors. That's why I got, I got tired of like, but at least off. they're out there doing something. You know, there's so don't, many sedentary people. There is. Don't give them like a glimpse of hope, like benefit Stop. of the doubt. No, a shitty not. person's a shitty person. You can't just tell, okay, this person's like 500 pounds and they're out there like trying to play volleyball. You'd be like, oh, Lucy's out there playing volleyball. Like, okay, it's a difference if you're out there playing. But if you're out there playing and telling people like, well, oh, yeah, that's throwing. different. Yeah, if they're trying and they're having fun and they're they're still not getting it, but they're at least trying. Or if they're out there and they're not to a level they need to be, and then they're criticizing and coaching others. I give people credit for like for like. I'll give them the respect for trying to better themselves a hundred percent. Yeah. What you can't say that to someone who's bettering themselves in quotations and meanwhile they're telling you like oh oh yeah heather i need you to go over there like you yeah you're, you're better off just, you know just go sit down yeah just go ahead and just send me just the watch ball. me do this send me the ball i got this it's like my little man yeah. like you barely reaching the bottom line of the net no, there's – I mean, but it's just – I guess it's just a difference and I'm. it's good to see people out being active is, I guess, my thing, regardless of their good or bad humans. But I think just being active is something that's that's positive. So, like, for you, the – like, I mean, we talked about it and the big thing for you is you really go out of your way and you do a lot of stuff um, to – to help people work and better themselves mentally for their game, whether it's, you know, even like in business, like you've done stuff for, for companies and stuff like that. What is it that is your main goal really when you, when you reach out to these people or they reach out to you and they want you to come and speak? Um, for me and anything that I do, if it's an event or a speaking engagement or a one-on-one or mentoring, whatever it is, I like to leave them better than I find them. And that's pretty much kind of my goal in anything. 
um, you know, the companies I've worked with and, and been fortunate to be a part of, whether it's a long period of time or a short period of time, as long as I know the people that I interacted with and the company on a whole is better when I leave than when I walked in the front door. Um, if it's just on awareness of what they need to be better at, if they've actually implemented change, but just to have the conversations and to bring things to light that maybe they weren't looking at to help the people that are in the organization. Um, and when you look at it on a personal level, the same thing, like how, how can I help this person understand how special they are and how much growth potential they still have? Because a lot of people get to a point and they're scared. And I am too. Like when I go through the transition, I'm terrified to know what's on the other side. But when you have somebody there that can kind of help you through it, um, you know, that's what I look to be for these people. My life isn't perfect. I don't have everything put together, but I learn as I go. And through those experiences, I like to share and then having conversations with people and understanding where they are. And sometimes people just want to be listened to. And we all have the answers we're looking for within ourselves. We just don't take the time to have that conversation with ourselves. Some people are just afraid to admit it. Yeah, but like in a conversation and, and, and if it's from an academic, non-judgmental side, and that's sometimes I think people, if they sit down with their friends, there's still some sort of a judgment there. But when you're working with a mentor, you're working with someone that's, that's truly there just to help you. Like That's the phone, by the way. When yeah, I- yeah, that's the phone. Sorry about that. That um, it's just a different, it's a different framing and it's a different lens that you're working in. And I think it, it gives them a freedom to share and to be open to the possibilities of trying different things because they also know they have a support system. Um, you know, so that's, that's something that's cool that when I'm working with older people, but obviously with kids and mentoring kids, it's, it's really just bringing awareness to, okay, this is, this is how to be a good human being. And this is how to be a good member of the community, whether it's their school community, their classroom, their family, their, you know, their physical like city community, whatever it is. Um, Cause some of them and in, in the, in the schools that I would work with were kind of like high needs. So they don't have that at home. They don't have those lessons and to have it coming from an Olympian and you can kind of trinkle in and sprinkle in the, cool aspects of sports and traveling the world and, and, you know, being in the Olympics and doing all these different things. Um, it catches their attention that maybe if their teachers are doing it, that they're not getting that message across. Um, you know, but even with the teachers of the classrooms that I worked with, they were phenomenal people and want nothing but good things for their kids. So it's, it's hard to believe that they can't get that across. But, you know, so it just depends, like, by age, how you deliver, how you kind of frame the conversation and the information that you give to help them to maximize, you know, who they are and and the potential that they have. And some of them are okay and they go for it. And some of them, you can tell in the course of the conversation that, okay, they're not ready for this yet. Okay, let's try. You know, we can't bust through the front door, so let's try, you know, the side door, back door, window, whatever it is, like, just to get the seed planted and then let them come to it on their own time. Um, you know, and it's the same with like development of an athlete. Like, you know, they're not there. They have the, they need the motor skills. Maybe they have it. How are you going to teach it? 
Um, you know, we talked about with you and your photos and you being able to actually break down different moves and it actually helps you yeah. in the motor skill and the development by seeing it that way. Yeah, it was a different type of analysis. But I mean, I've always been a very analytical person. So especially when it comes to like body language. Yeah. And yeah. for me, like when I see, you know, whether it's jujitsu or MMA, like I can read people from seeing them like after like a few minutes, I'm like, okay, well, I can tell your mannerisms or this, that, and the other. So it makes it easier for me to expect. And then when it's like jujitsu, it's like, well, I know what people, it's no different than language. I know the words that people use more often than others. So I know what yeah. they're going to go to in a conversation. Right. Well, right. I know what they're going to go to in a role. So then I know what to look ahead. Right. So right. it's no different than, than your drilling. You know, you, you set up and you drill, you know what to do automatically. Right. For me, it's right. a mixture of being able to, to drill mentally is even more important than drilling physically because I can sit there and I can train and I can get my body to do stuff. But if I'm not mentally, not even engaged, but if I'm not mentally flowing in the conversation that's going on, doesn't matter how strong I am because I'm going to hit a wall. And if I'm going to hit a wall, then there's nothing I can do. But if I can think my way around it, then I can be right. creative and I can sit there and do other stuff. I think that's one of the biggest things that I see. Like, and it irks me as, as someone that likes to compete is that people aren't willing to sacrifice the time to do what you need to do off the mat. And that's yeah. why like, I that's see what makes, that's what makes the difference. That's why I sit there and I see like, you know, people wonder like, Oh, how is this person so good? It's like, maybe they're, they're not even the best person on the mat or on the court, but they're the ones that are putting in the most work outside. So like they might not be able to beat you physically, but they can beat you mentally. Right. And a lot of the times that that's makes a difference. Yeah. It makes the, you know, it's, it splits up the seconds. It splits up the, the, the moments of, of advantage that you can take care of. Um, Because if I see an advantage, that's better than being able to just physically being able to push you someplace into a certain position. Right. You see, it just like in volleyball, like you have your set pieces. Like you know, okay, well, this team is really good when we yeah, – Everybody has a tendency. Regardless of a conscious or sub, like unconscious, like do you have a tendency that you're constantly going to fall back on. So do you work when you do like this stuff, like the, the mental prep and stuff with people? Is it like sports specific or do you kind of just work with like any athlete regardless? Um. I guess, but I mean, I've done, I guess the personal development, it's, it's been both with corporate and with athletes. Um, so yeah, it's not just sports specific. I think it's more behavioral specific, mm-hmm. like how people interact as human beings and a proper way to do that. I think there's a lot of um, inefficiencies in communication and just a vulnerability to whether it's an interpersonal or just kind of a, a personal development. I mean, like we talked about before, just being the openness of, of being open and honest with yourself in the situation that you're in and the conversation that you need to have. Um, so yeah, it's not just sport specific where it's like motor skill and sport development, mental development that way, but I think it's just overall human being, um, personal behavioral 
development, kind of understanding how to be a, a better and more efficient and effective member of society, whether it's society at whole or society in a, a company or on a team. So we got to wrap it up in a little bit, but if you could give like advice to someone who, you know, they understand that they have to work on their mentality, but they have no real clue as to what's the first step to take. Uh, what would your advice be to, to kind of get them going? Well, just the fact that they're aware that they need to have something different is huge, that they want something different, that they have a deficiency somewhere. Um, there's a lot of people that don't get there or they don't, they don't have the um, courage to admit it. So that in itself is big. I think from there, it's just putting yourself or aligning yourself with people that, that share your core values, and your common your common values, whether it's in sports, whether it's co- you're looking for a coach, um, if you're just looking for a community to join just to kind of better yourself, you have to be with people that align with who you are, who your true person is, not who you want to be seen as, because that's not going to help you develop and thrive. You're always going to feel kind of a resistance and a friction because you're not being true to who you really are. Um, I mean, obviously there's always whatever it is you feel you're deficient at. You can always read books. I mean, go on YouTube, whatever it is. There's, there's plenty of academic reading and things like that and behavioral sciences um, that you can, you know, kind of self-educate. But then if you find a mentor, even if it's somebody in your community, maybe it's a church, maybe it's another athlete, somebody that just understands you and you have an easy communication flow with them, use them as a sounding board. Use them as a growth plate. Like, Be comfortable and you have to be, you have to find someone that you feel comfortable being vulnerable with to be able to grow. And I think that's, the, that's probably the hardest step for people because you can talk to them and you can give them insight. And, and I don't like to tell people to do things because ultimately it's on their own time and, and they're on their own journey. And so they're going to get there when they get there. But to be able to give them the tools or to at least equip them with the knowledge of what's out there as far as opportunities and then let them decide if they're ready but like I said, like the, the self-realization that they know something's not right and they want something to change or they want something to be different. There's not a lot of people that will admit that. There's not a lot of people that are comfortable with change and knowing. And if you're an athlete and you know you want something more, go for it. Like I knew when I was in college, I wanted to be on the Olympic team. I went to my college coach. They told me, don't set your dreams so high. I mean. Who, who doesn't want every athlete in a college program to come to them and say, I want to be an Olympian. I want to, I want to be up there. So it, don't let anybody discourage you. Like if you know that you want to be better, find a way to do it on your own time, whatever your own message needs to be. But find those people in your life that you can connect with on that level and just build your tribe. Like that's what you have to do. You have to have your sphere of support and, and 
when you're going through, like we've been talking about on this podcast, like the sacrifices you're going to make, you need to have that person that you can call and talk to open and honestly about where you are and what you're struggling with. Um, and so I think that just the, the self-realization that they need something more and then just the education and, and finding people that align with their core values. And maybe they need to define what their core values are. What do I stand for? What do I want to be? What do I want to be known for? What do I want my legacy to be? Align that with whoever you're working with and whether like, like I know you've talked about different schools around the areas and like people will switch and go to different places with different professors. Like, Find a professor, have a conversation with them. And like for me, my coaches, I realized way too late in my career that they're an asset. Like there's so many times like we think, oh, they're my coach. I can't be their friend. I can't talk to them. I can't do that. You lose out on so much knowledge and so much insight because you are not tapping into that wealth of knowledge that they have. And if you can find someone that you align with, I mean, the sky's the limit because they're going to be able to talk to you on a whole new level. You're going to be able to understand what they're saying. Like just the the common language is going to be so much easier than talking to somebody that maybe has a certain way of saying something, but you're not going to interpret it correctly. So then you're missing the whole point of it when you can just get that smooth flow, um, you know, you you have that sense of freedom and it's one less pressure that you have to deal with when you're trying to push yourselves at the level, like you're talking about with jujitsu and MMA, like they're already putting themselves through so much. Why wouldn't you want to help yourself with having your peer of influence and your support system just be that much simpler? Yeah. Um, so like streamlining everything. Yeah, like, and it's all within your power, but you have to be identi- be able to identify who you are as a person. And that's a step I think a lot of people miss. I don't think there's a lot of introspection to say, okay, this is who I am. This is maybe where I have my weakness. This is my strength. Well, then it goes... Um, these are my core Yeah, values. but then it also like, you know, you have to go back even further like you're backtracking saying like, okay, well, why am I doing so bad? It's like maybe because I'm not willing to admit that I suck at these aspects or that I need to work on these aspects so then I can get into this. Right. Well, it's all building. And even like people that can do that and they say, okay, I'm deficient at this. Can I find a coach or can I find a partner that's good at that? And then I can watch them and I can learn from them or they can guide me and show me the right way to, and maybe you're not going to be a hundred percent proficient at whatever the skill is or the fundamental is. But if you can get in like in volleyball, we were talking about like the peaks and valleys, like if you can get them, so they're not so frequent. Um, well, it's not the frequency, but it's the, the highs and like the, I'm blanking on the word. The peaks um, and valleys. Yeah. But like the distance between them. Right. So it's more of a plateau. Like, I mean, it can't be small, but it's not so, like, pronounced. Yeah. And because you're never going to be perfect in anything. So, but getting to a point where you can train out those deficiencies to a point where you're good enough, and a lot of good enoughs are going to make excellence, um, but finding people that help you do that. Like, yeah, you need to be good at one technique. You don't need to train with somebody that's equally as good at that technique. Yeah. Like, 
we do stuff with juniors, I always like to put them in threes. So you have one person that's better than you and one person that's less better than you. Well, not less better. <laughs> that's not a word. I'm trying to worse. Worse. Yeah. yeah. Like, they're just deficient in whatever it is. So then that person that's deficient can look up to you and you can look up to that top, that top person. That top person now has the responsibility of mentoring and bringing up both of you. So everybody has a responsibility. Right. And I don't know if with jiu-jitsu, MMA, whatever, I know you guys always do in pairs, but when you're training and things like that, if you have that mindset or if a coach looks at it that way, then you're constantly developing. Yeah, well, we all, we we have that. I mean, some people are more open to it than others. You know, if you have white belts in the class or lower belts in the class, they're usually paired up with someone either the next level up or like a little bit higher than that. So then it's like, yeah, you know, obviously the coach is going to be able to – to focus on every individual person. So you do have to kind of, you know, have faith in your own students and saying like, okay, I taught you, I need you to help me teach them. Exactly. So, and a lot of the times, you know, obviously different sport, different things happen. It's different for jujitsu because a lot of people be like, oh yeah, well, you know, he teaches this way, but you know, do it this way because it'll be better. So like yeah, they all want to down. everything gets watered yeah. down, you know, like yeah. the way yeah. that you like bump set spike might be different than what I'm going to tell someone. Obviously. Oh, I see plus, it all the time. Yeah. It, last night I was coaching and it's totally, and people will come to me and be like, like what how are you, do you doing? Teach, like, how do you teach this? Yeah. And everybody, every coach has their own philosophy, but it just, you have to find what works for you. Um, and just build a foundation. Yeah. Cause you have to have the fundamentals. So it just, yeah. Well, that's good. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up on that because we're like an hour and a half in. <laughs> but Sorry. we have to get in on your podcast because I'm trying to get this girl to start a podcast because <laughs> I think it'd actually be extremely beneficial, like just as much for you as to everybody that would listen to it. I think you got a lot of stories and you uh, you know a lot of people with some crazy stories that would be pretty, yeah, would be pretty cool to have out there in the, in the ether. So... Be sure to to follow Heather. Actually, like, do you want to throw your social media stuff out there for people to follow you? Uh, or are you going MIA? No, I'm not MIA. I just actually don't even know my handles. I think my Instagram is uh, Bowen underscore Heather. B-O-W-N. B-O-W-N. One of the best four-letter words out there. Um, <laughs> so my dad always says he gets so angry when people mispronounce and misspell things. Um, I believe it's Heather underscore E underscore Bowen. Cool. So be sure to follow Heather and everybody uh, past her to start her own podcast. Like <laughs> harass on a daily basis. Please don't. Uh, Alexis does it enough. <laughs> yeah. So make sure you guys follow her. But thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Hopefully we can get you uh, back on yeah, after you start your own podcast. Yeah, I'll tell you how it's going. Yeah. Well, <laughs> hopefully we'll start recording in a little bit a little bit, but thank you everybody for tuning in and I'll catch you next time. 